Hello, and welcome to Kazigram Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to having honest conversations on the issues most important to life and to our culture. You can find us online at kazingram.com. That's K-A-Z-I-N-G-R-A-M.com. We hope you enjoy this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kazingram Dialogue podcast. Thank you for uh, being here and listening to this episode. Some quick announcements for you. The first one is the episodes will be moving from Friday to Wednesday. So every Wednesday, the episodes will be releasing. So now, as a result of that, you have two extra days during your week to listen to it while you're at work, being super efficient, pop, 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 pop. Uh, the second part of the announcement is we're making a survey to find out uh, what kind of episodes you've enjoyed, what kind of topics you want to hear more about. And also, we want to find out what kind of guests or who, rather, should we have on the podcast. So those those are coming up. Without further ado, my guest today is Amos Dober. You guys know Amos. Amos is the editor. He just moved to Toronto to start his medieval studies at the Center of Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto. So big congrats to Amos. In this episode, we discuss the importance of tradition. We discuss um, tradition versus traditionalism, the Middle Eastern source of Western culture, and obviously political philosophy. So please welcome Amos Dober to the Kazingham Dialogue podcast. So you want me to take off my mouth guard? Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be the first time I, I'm taking off my mouth guard. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit nervous. Why? Because of, of my teeth. Oh, what happened? Oh, I thought I told you, remember? Didn't I tell you? What happened? Well, on the weekend, I was, <clears throat> I was uh, sparring Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and then one of my training partners, he... It was trying to get around me. Mm-hmm. He's a big dude. He's a big dude. Um, and he basically, I was on the ground. Like my back was on, I, I was in a supine position. And he was on top. He was trying to get around me. And then he went, his elbow went direct, like directly across my face. Oh. Out to my mouth. And that's, <clears throat> yeah, it was like... <laughs> And for a split second, I was I was a bit dazed, as mm-hmm. if bleeding, because I have a laceration on my lips. Oh no! And then, yeah, I was like, "Oh, it's it's pretty fine, you know. There's nothing. I don't feel anything. My teeth feels a bit loose, so I was like, okay, it's not too bad." And then okay. <clears throat> I went and sparred a little bit more, but lighter. And then I came home, you know, showed Kaylin. We didn't look too carefully. And then Sunday night, um. I was telling Kaylin, I was like, yeah, it still hurts because I'd been wearing my mouth guard the whole time because yeah. it was loose. And she looks at it, she goes, oh, you have horizontal cracks across your teeth. So I have like horizontal cracks across my two front teeth. <laughs> so then yeah, I, went, maybe, to, I yeah. went to the dentist yesterday. I, okay. And what did he say? Well, he's like, yeah, you have, we have, you have a fracture, but. We can't really tell. It's too early to tell if there's like, if the root has been dis- dislodged, if your okay. root has been dislodged or if the, if the fracture is internal. Apparently there is a surface fracture. Yeah. Surface fracture where it's just like the enamel's cracked and then like, uh, and then an internal fracture where like, uh, where you hold tooth, it goes right through. That's about all I know. And he said, well, we, it's too early to tell. 
Okay. So, um, just keep wearing this mouth guard. This is this okay. is basically. I thought you were wearing it as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> you said this is my bling. <laughs> of course, no, it's not a joke. It's so it's mad. It is. I've been wearing the mouth guard 24, 24, yeah, tw- almost 24, uh, 24 every, every, for the whole okay. day since Saturday. All right. Well, I mean, if you need it, go put it in. It does give you a bit of a lisp though. Yeah, I know. Uh, so I'll, I'll try talking. I'm just, uh, I'll, I'll be very careful not to get my tongue to hit the bottom, uh, the back of my teeth. Cause that's when it, like it jabs me a bit. Uh, okay. Yeah, and this is this is not great publicity for doing Brazilian jits. <laughs> oh, we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just—I said okay. It was one, two, yeah. three. <laughs> so, how's the Toronto life, Amos? Ah, uh, I've only been here for a week. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot more busy, but I I like it quite a bit. Um, it's not like I miss the culture of Toronto. Uh, you miss the culture here. of Toronto? Oh, I have missed the culture of Toronto. Really? Yeah. The debauchery life? No, 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 no. <laughs> I just mean like, you know, uh, so right around the corner, uh, there's like this, um, this Pakistani restaurant that has some really cheap stuff. It's pretty good. Oh no. What is it called? Oh, I don't, I don't remember the name oh, of it. Man. Oh, it's just I right around. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Just like people from everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some things that I don't miss. Like I'm more downtown now than I was, um, like when I lived in Toronto before. Right. And so like, I'm sort of on the, the edge of a rough area. And so like, you see, like if, when I go for a walk at night, like there's a lot of people that I see like smoking crack in the bus stops and stuff. Nice. That's always yeah. fun. I'm yeah. <laughs> like you got to feel bad for the people, but Yeah. It's, uh, okay, so it's, it can be rough. Um, and for everyone else who doesn't know, you're in Toronto because? I'm studying, uh, like I'm doing a program at the Center for Medieval Studies. Um, That's the UFT. Yep. It's uh, going to the colleges of UFT. Um, going to be taking lots of courses in medieval philosophy, uh, church history stuff, and Latin. And you were saying that UFT is the only uh, University of Toronto is the only school in Toronto that's open in person or yeah. doing in person classes. Yeah, as of right now, and even then, like, um, I think it's mostly just the graduate student, like graduate classes that are meeting. I think a lot of undergraduate classes are not meeting in person because you know they can't sign out a big auditorium that would seat. Like, I think Intro to Psychology at U of T. A couple of years ago, I had like 3,000 students in the class. So they had to hire like 30 TAs and, you know, just do a bunch of, like the admin for that course must have been brutal. But they, they can't do that now, obviously. Um, I wonder so if yeah. that class was with Jordan Peterson. No, I don't think, I don't think he does intro. I think he only oh. does it per year. Okay. Do you think UFT increased their student um what is it called incoming class because of Jordan Peterson over the past few years do you have any suspicion that it did yeah it's hard to tell um like he's he's a polarizing figure yeah 
Um, so I, I have a friend who went to the Center for Medieval Studies back when Jordan Peterson uh, was getting really big. So when would that have been? That would be in 2016. Okay, no, sorry, he wasn't there. Like he got, he got yeah, really no, big think, in 2016. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was his last year at the Center for Medieval yeah. Studies, and Jordan Peterson was just getting big. And like, there's a, a petition that circulated among all the like all the grad students, not just that Center for Medieval Studies, but like all the graduate colleges, um, to uh, basically let's fire Jordan Peterson. Um, wow. Yeah. And wow, oh, because of what? Do you remember what he said? Um, what she said. Yeah, no, I, I don't remember exactly what the issue was. Um, yeah, I don't remember what the reason was behind the petition. Uh, this was told to me like a number of months ago. So, uh -oh. Well, I'm glad they didn't go through. Yeah. I mean, no, I wonder uh, what the uh, admin, the bureaucrats said when they, you know, when they yeah. received that letter. Because uh, there's a tendency right now, Francis Widowson, who was our guest, who's been our guest two times. Mm -hmm. She's she's in the mix of things right now at Mount Royal University because oh. yeah, because the uh, Mount Royal University there's a Mount Royal University anti-racism group and a bunch of the profs there at Mount Royal <clears throat> are very anti-Francis and they okay. you know, they call her a racist, a white supremacist, you know, the classical uh, labels. Yeah. For people that they disagree with, but there's um, there there have been a few petitions that have happened <clears throat> that have garnered you know attention from the faculty that don't like her and students who don't like her and her positions on you know um and her criticism of the indigenous policies, you know the way the government has handled it. Mm -hmm petitions to basically essentially get her fired and say, we, how can we have a white supremacist in Mount at Mount Royal university teaching these students and then making, turning them into white supremacist. Yeah. When she's nothing of the sort, like, isn't she, <laughs> isn't she like a classical Marxist? Yeah. She's a Marxist. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a funny video on YouTube when uh, Lindsay Shepard had her, at the Rational Space Network, or not? I figure whatever thing that Lindsay Shepard started out in um, Laurier before she left. Mm -hmm. Francis showed up, and there's a there's a video <clears throat> where Francis is being protested by uh, these um, socialists. Uh, was a young socialist of young Canadian socialists or whatever the the group is called. Okay. You can see Francis is like, "I'm one of you." <laughs> yeah, you know, but they're like. You know, they're they're wanting her to get off the pro um, of uh, of Laurier because they think she's yeah it's against them <clears throat> yeah okay yeah they, I don't know there's there's quite a split um, in well among some like leftist camp um, like Marxists who see identity politics as an obstacle to achieving equality for the working classes. Hmm. And um, and you know those who see it as a as a good tool, uh, and I I understand that there is a split there, um, but it's just like funny that uh, you know that can that conservatives are are dialoguing with with Marxists now because uh, the new left won't. 
you left just won't entertain the two conversations in the yeah. same room. <clears throat> it, um, did you see the uh, Donald Trump sign some? Uh, I don't know what it was. Is it, I think it's an executive order to remove all critical race theory within the federal government or references. References? Is it references or um, use of? I, th- I think it was more training. Like oh, training. Okay. There shouldn't be these training programs here. Yeah, yeah. I I, I saw that. Um, yeah, I think I think it is more just like a, you know, trying to feed the base before the election, get mm-hmm. them riled up about something. You don't think he really cares? Ah, uh, no, I don't think he really cares. We have um, some friends of mine who work in the government. Have told me that they've had to do lots of <clears throat> before obviously this before but they've had to do plenty of these um trainings unconscious bias training mm-hmm. um i forgot the other stuff they told me was you know <clears throat> and so it's interesting here it's it, it's all i can't imagine s- someone like a leader denouncing critical race theory. I can't imagine Justin Trudeau coming out. Okay, guys, I've had this. Is it the blue pill or the red pill that what wakes you up? Is it red-pilled? Yeah. Oh, okay, it's, that's the word, right? Red-pilled? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine Justin Trudeau being red-pilled during the uh, por- during parliament being, being prorogued, coming out. Hey, guys, listen. <laughs> well, I mean, both sides, well, sides, like both uh, identitarian right, like you know, like racist white nationalists and like people on the left use red pill as as a term to you know you sort of had a realization and converted to their ideology. Um, so he would say that he's already red pill. Wait, the people on the le- uh, the far left use the <laughs> well, term red pill. Yeah, really, I, I didn't know that. Every well, yeah. I think it's sort of become more popular now, but it sort of originated in some pretty radical circles. That, and there's been critique of the term because of those associations. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I was thinking, you know what I was thinking about though? The, um, I know we've ha- we had this conversation previously, but uh, <clears throat> thinking about the, what the most effective way for people in a society to live, you know, where we discussed maybe the best way to do it, maybe the best form of a society is to have smaller, not smaller government, but <clears throat> to have give more power to the municipal, to the local area. And then as the, as the uh, you know, as the powers grow, so as you go up mm-hmm. from municipal to <clears throat> federal, the, the, the amount of power you have just drains trains is not the right word yeah uh, uh, get smaller or less powerful but i was thinking <clears throat> it would be very annoying okay so it would be very annoying if you're in a neighborhood right and mm-hmm. say as the power gets stronger and stronger the you know the the, the, the concentration of power gets stronger as you get smaller and smaller <clears throat> so if you were in a neighborhood and you say you wanted to build something in your house, like in your backyard or something, right? Yeah. And you wanted to change your lawn or whatever. 
Um, I think Nassim Taleb mentioned this in his book, Anti-Fragile, or I think it's in Anti-Fragile. He mentions how <clears throat> in Switzerland, the neighbors are very, very um, petty mm-hmm. with each other. And they, you know, they tell on each other. They, they, they're very, very particular what another neighbor, neighbor can do to their house, to their lawn, just in their area. I don't know how true this is. I'm just going off what he had said. Okay. Well, to say, I would find it very annoying to live in a neighborhood like that. Where yeah. you, you know, where you don't, where you, you know, say you're trying to build an extra, like your, your house, your parents' house, you know, they have that nice hut um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> seated thing. Imagine someone, their neighbor, the one behind, they're like, oh, I don't like this. This is a stupid view. I don't want to see this stupid yeah, yeah, yeah. gazebo. It was very annoying. Yeah, I think you're right. But like, um, so, I mean, we've talked about the principle of subsidiarity in politics before that, um, you know, decisions should be made at the most, um, you know, at the, at the lowest level possible. Uh, that's, that's how you guarantee people's freedom and you, you act with integrity. Like people are rational creatures and they're able to make decisions for themselves. And so like, on, on most things. And so you need to sort of like, yeah, lowering the level where those sorts of decisions are made might include maybe um, having freer uh, housing laws, like, you know, zoning laws, make it easier to do, get building permits and stuff mm. like that. Um, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, if that was the case, it, Sure, but what about like, you know, you're thinking uh, in um, Jonathan Hyde talks about in his uh, Calling of the American Mind, uh, neighbor complaining, the neighbor calling child services because uh, because the parents came home from work late for like an hour or two hours. They were late. And so the kid was just playing basketball on their, on their court, you know, the uh, garage, mm-hmm. whatever they called it in America. <clears throat> and the and the neighbor called child services for negligence. And then the child was taken away from the parents. And I think they were in, you know, they were fighting in court for a few months, but imagine that, you know, you come home, nothing's happened to you. You're just playing ball. Yeah. Your parents are, you know, bed late from work. And then your neighbor feels like they're doing something good by calling child services. Like, Oh, Hey, these guys aren't taking care of the kids. Yeah. The appeal to authority there, um, yeah, I don't think that's healthy at all. Mm. Like if you cared, you know. Why don't you talk to them? Yeah, like when I when I was in high school, uh, both my parents were working, and sometimes, like you know, neither of them would. We'd be an hour before we came home, yeah. and um, you know, I, I remember one time, uh, <laughs> my sister and I were locked out of the out of the house, and um, like none of us had remembered our keys. And uh, yeah, we had like a neighbor, yeah, a neighbor called us up and asked us like, you know, oh, you can come over here and hang out. We thought he was kind of creepy. And so we didn't. And we, we just, <laughs> wow. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. We're just going to do some chores in the backyard. Like we had a wood stove. So we went and like stacked wood. <laughs> Is this in the winter? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yikes. Yeah. I mean, good call on the neighbor. No, sorry, just a sec. Yeah. 
<laughs> who are you so, vigorously shaking your head? Uh, yeah, no, some guy's trying to get my attention because there's a car in a parking spot that shouldn't be there. Oh, oh, I see, I see. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe it's more like more small town thing. You know, as you, as you go from small town to big big cities, there is, I mean, there is a a real distinction between people's relation with each other. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's that. I think, like, in some ways, um, the idea of an appeal to an authority in, like, when you're trying to solve disputes or solve issues, solve moral dilemmas, is something that's very ingrained in our culture. I think, you know, I've said it before that um, we tend to adopt Hobbesian assumptions. Mm. And so, like, so for Hobbes, in the state of nature, you're in a war of all against all. Mm-hmm. And whoever decisively wins that war becomes a sovereign yeah. who gains a monopoly on the exercise of power uh, and a, a monopoly on the exercise of violence in society. Um, and, you know, the sort of state of violence never goes away, uh, but it sort of becomes mitigated through the sovereign. So, um, you know, the sovereign controls markets and sets people in competition with each other. And the sovereign controls uh the legal aspects of society. Mm. So when there's disputes, um, he's the one who adjudicate, or you know, he, he is, sort of yeah, a theoretical yeah. he. But the, the sovereign, <gasps> yeah, sexist, famous. Wow, yeah. you would think no, it's a male. Oh no, I'm just trying to say like this doesn't apply to mon- monarchical societies only. Yeah. Hobbes, Hobbes yeah. dreamed it up for a monarchical society, mm. uh, but some of the assumptions that he makes still survive into discussions of liberal democracy. Uh, you know, and they get papered over over with some things, um, you know, discussions of rights and freedom and stuff. But uh, a lot of the assumptions still remain there uh, in form, especially. But like uh, the idea of instead of coming together and, um, you know, forming treaties amongst ourselves, there's a need to appeal to the sovereign to adjudicate things uh, because that's where all the power is concentrated. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, we're just powerless. In what society. do you... What do you think of the veil of ignorance in terms of, instead of making, you know, within the Hobbesian understanding, instead of making treaties and partnerships, you, you appeal to someone stronger, bigger than you to, to get things done. You know, the veil of treaty, uh, not the veil, what am I saying? The veil yeah. of ignorance by John Rawls. Okay. Um, do you know about that? Um, a bit. And I don't, I don't know if the audience would either. So maybe. Oh. Well, if I'm butchering this, you must correct me, okay? Um, the veil of ignorance from John Rawls was saying that imagine what kind of society you would like you would like to live in if you didn't know what would it be. Yeah, dream up of a dream dream a society that you would like to live in, if you didn't know what class you would fall under when the society oh, was created. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, say you and I, say you and I, you become a billionaire, I become a I become a, a, not a billionaire, and so you know, if this was if this was the case, but you didn't know that you become a billionaire, and I didn't know that I wouldn't become a billionaire if we were creating a society behind a veil of ignorance, how would we want the society built? Do we want it such that a billionaire, the billionaires would give 50% of their wealth towards universal basic income to everyone making less than, you know, 
a certain amount of money or do we want billionaires to be free tax free to go ahead with no sort of um uh, um taxes that they have to provide yeah you know would it be better and so behind the veil of ignorance neither of you neither neither of us know who's going to be the billionaire so then we decide on what would be most favor, favorable to the one who's not a billionaire mm-hmm. i mean that's what he assumes that people would do i'm not sure yeah um sorry i didn't understand your last point but john ross seems to take that in a much more like egalitarian way uh, we'd want a society uh, that's free where we're able to um, work to achieve our own goals yeah uh, but you know we, we'd want to have like relative equality so he's a bit of a social democrat yeah uh, can you see my my video yeah okay it just everything's kind of stuck right now on my computer. okay oh now you're stuck um you keep looking out the window what the? <laughs> no there's all yeah i'm watching the the parking drama unfold oh that's because someone parked there yeah i think my computer's stuck because oh crap um so, so last night i was uh <clears throat> i was i was trying to sleep and oh my goodness come on yeah you i i see you just fine okay um i can't pull this thing back up uh, anyways it'll, it'll load uh last night i was trying to sleep right mm-hmm. and i got too excited for this podcast so i, I couldn't sleep so i had <laughs> my phone <clears throat> and i was watching youtube videos and i was like okay and i i haven't done this in a while mm-hmm. so i i started watching uh cracking video you know like chiropractor videos oh yeah <laughs> used to be big on this man there is something i know <laughs> There's something deeply satisfying about watching someone getting their backs and their necks and their legs and their ankles and their shoulders and their elbows popped. Like, oh, yeah. man, I don't know what it is about it. And then especially when they're like, there's one guy that I watched specifically. His name is Dr. Bu Hightower. Mm-hmm. Big dude. Like, he's, he's, he's a big boy. He must be like 200 and at least 240 pounds yeah, probably used to be a football player like a linebacker big dude but he's a chiropractor mm-hmm. um, and he does a lot of adjustments for UFC fighters and other athletes man he has he has some of the weirdest cracks he basically will crack Amos Amos he has a hammer okay like a like a big red hammer I think you showed this to me <laughs> Oh, did I show it to you already? I think so. Okay. It's so, you know, like, for example, like my shoulder, oh, actually my shoulder feels, but yeah, this, you can see like, this shoulder. Yeah. It's kind of stuck here. So for example, he would get, he would take his big red hammer and then he would just lift your arm and yeah. And he'll go. And I don't know if it's, and obviously the, the, the videos are like, the videos are 20 minutes long. So you can see people's shoulders being adjusted. Yeah. And so Anyways, I was trying. I was watching that. I thought, okay, maybe this would relax me because people's necks are being cracked, backs are being cracked, but it didn't. It was yeah. I I don't find it relaxing. Like there's there's a bit of uh, like I, I guess you know, sympathy might be the word. You you sympathy. sort of yeah. You sympathize with their satisfaction. Uh, you, you empathize feel, or sympathize? 
Um, I still don't. Yeah, I would say sympathize, but with the with the with the, like you like through through imagination, like yeah. through the imagination, you can sort of you know that you've cracked your neck before and how that like, has released some tension. Um, but I I find I get more excited about those things, like uh, like you get excited to get your back cracked. No, it, it just like you know after after you do that, right? It gets your heart rate going and it doesn't calm you down. <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, well like it's a, it's a painful thing. It's like, you know, have you, have you ever gone to chiropractors? No, I haven't. Never ever. No. Oh, for some reason I thought you had, man, chiropractors are, yeah, I, I'm still, my mind's not fully made up about chiropractors. There are some sketchy chiropractors that s- some people I know go to where, Mm-hmm. A chiropractor is supposed to adjust them, but then they okay. adjust them for the rest of their life for like this one problem. It's like okay. three times a week and they get adjusted for the same problem. And these are not serious problems, right? Like for example, there's a, some, there was someone I knew and they traveled, you know, they traveled for 14, 15 hours to their new place. And, um, and you know, <clears throat> we met up with them and we were talking and they were like, yeah, I started going to a chiropractor, you know, and we're like, oh, we're like, why? What happened? They're like, well, you know, the 14-hour travel really messed up my back because I was sitting for 14 hours driving. It's like, well, first of all, lots of people do it. They don't get their backs messed up unless you get into a car accident or something, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay. And they're like, yeah, we started going to a chiropractor three times a week. And this is, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. And then we meet them. Six months later, or maybe seven months later, and they were still going to the same chiropractor for the same problem three times a week. Yeah. I'm like, this sounds kind of, but it does feel great. I will tell you that. I've been to chiropractors here, and there have been times where I think, especially with doing jiu-jitsu, they were doing, we were doing throws, and I got thrown, and then my hip or somewhere on my back, basically just like a, a back, a sharp pain. And then the chiropractor kind of put it back together. So I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical, but on the one hand, not fully skeptical of chiropractors and other um, traditional medicine stuff. Oh. Have you ever done, have you ever done a needling? Acupuncture? No. Would you ever do it? Yeah, why not? Really? Yeah. What about cupping? Um, I've heard that's actually supposed to be really like good for your muscles. Okay. Uh, but you know the weird sort of marks that use. I don't know. I I wouldn't really want that. Oh, Amos, we should one hundred percent. When I'm in Toronto, we should just go to an acupuncture place. I would love to do an acupuncture. There's um, a- yeah, there's this TV ad though. Uh, I forget what. It, like I think it's at for an insurance company. It's like some guy goes to an acupuncture place on like the 13th floor of this building and like the building catches fire and he's like all full of needles and the fire <laughs> and the trampoline out and they're saying, jump, jump, jump. <laughs> and then it just cuts off there and it's like, uh, get insurance. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, imagine jumping from that building 
have with all the needles, and then you're falling onto the trampoline with your back. They'll just go. That would be an acupuncture for life. <laughs> yeah. There's something with, uh, yeah. There's a National Geographic magazine that I'm reading that um, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, talking about Chinese traditional medicine mm-hmm. and how they're starting to find that a lot of Chinese traditional medicine, you know, Chinese traditional medicine is like a thousand, two thousand years old, mm-hmm. and they've helped, you know a lot of the herbalists slash I don't know what they're called. Chinese traditional doctors have said are good for you and modern modern is not the right word western is neither the right word maybe european doctors have discredited them yeah cuz it's not scientific um something interesting in this article is uh, the people the doctors that are featured are are western uh, are are american but they're chinese descended mm-hmm. uh, they're like profs at harvard yale and one thing they found interesting, one thing they found is, it turns out in Chinese medicine, they, they've they had a long-held belief is not the right, but they've used bear bile, right? Mm-hmm. The bile from a bear to treat heart diseases, uh, liver liver problem, heart problems, liver problem, and I think like, um, I think like uh, sex drive. What do you call those things? What do you call sex drive? Libido. Libido. I think I think those are the three things. I could be getting the last one wrong, but the first two are, are, are like heart and liver. Mm-hmm. And they've held it for a long time that this is what you do when you have a heart problem, when you have liver problem. So, anyways, the doctors at at Harvard tested this out. They're like, okay, let's let's see if this is true. And you know, the bear bile industry in China apparently is huge. <clears throat> So they they did they ran an, uh, a test and they took the heart of a pig out of the pig, mm-hmm. okay, like ripped it out and just kind of connected it, and then injected bear bile to it and it started beating. How crazy is that? Ah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I when I was reading I was like, what? Uh, yeah, that's actually kind of gross. Yeah. So and then apparently it it beat it was beating for. 45 minutes tw- yeah, tw- 25 or 45 minutes just mm-hmm. with bare bile and so the doctor was just uh, was concluding that you know if this is true then there might be a lot of things within traditional Chinese medicine that you know we're missing out on because we've we sort of discredited them yeah I I mean that's likely the case like it's you know how, how many thousands of years old like sort of like 5,000 years of unbroken tradition. And so, you know, generations have tested different, uh, you know, remedies that are made from, like most traditional medicines were made from plants or, um, you know, animal parts and stuff. And so there, there is sort of like, um, like with, with unbroken traditions, you get sort of a, uh, a collective wisdom that gets passed down. Mm. You don't know why some of the things work, but they, they do, they've been tested generations um yeah i get mad at uh easy dismissal of traditions mm. uh, and it, it is quite common now mm-hmm. to dismiss tradition as a <clears throat> as ignorance yeah depending what circle you're in i mean it is common i mean it is even still within 
I would say most, I mean, most circles would still dismiss tradition unless you are, uh, unless, unless you're some, 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 unless you're, uh, like within some sort of religious orthodox group. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think for, for a lot of Western traditions have been preserved by, um, more say, I don't know, like high church organizations. Yeah. Uh, but even then, like traditional, like herbal medicines and stuff have not been preserved. Those are just gone. Mm. Um, it's more like, you know, traditional philosophy. Like oh, I see what you mean. Philosophy okay. and things that have been preserved. But I, I mean, like, you know, there there is an attempt in postmodern circles, and I, I really appreciate them for this, to, to sort of rehabilitate some of these things. And, you know, they maybe take it too far um, in some ways, just with, um, you know, some of the idea of, of cultural relativism. Uh, but, you know, there, there is sort of like wisdom in a lot of uh, like folk traditions and folk traditions that have been sort of overwritten or, you know, not suppressed, but almost abandoned in modern society. Abandon the modern society? Yeah, sure. So uh, an example would be like, um, like I'm, I'm sure you've heard of like uh, indigenous science, indigenous medicine, that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe postmodernists who want to dismiss um, sort of an enlightenment scientific worldview. And, you know, there's some reasons to do that and to maybe like embrace some sort of like, you know, Tom, Thomas Kuhn, is a bit of a postmodernist in that way uh, with paradigm shifts. And so there is like, you know, a sort of mediated position between relativism and like enlightenment positivism. Um, but yeah, I think some of the postmodernists have been trying to revive like, um, you know, there's all sorts of herbal remedies for like common sicknesses like the cold uh, that we've dismissed for a long time. And, you know, let's revive them. Uh, there's, there's a lot of healthy alternatives to just common mass-produced synthetic medicine. Mm. Mass-produced synthetic medicine that are, that are taken without any sort of second, uh, second thought. Yeah. You, cause you have on the back of these, some of these tablets, it tells you it'll cause nausea, vomiting, mm-hmm. you know, blah, blah, all these things. And people would still take them. And I'm not, obviously I'm, we're not, we're not saying that <clears throat> synthetic medicine is bad. I'm just no, no, no. That's not at all. It's just you know there. Yeah, there are some side effects, and like you know, maybe maybe you don't need something super strong for what you have. Um, your mom gave me some. I don't even know what it is. It looks like bulrushes. It's some kind of tea, and she just told me, yeah, take it when when you when you're sick with lemon and honey, and it's. You've been taking it, Amos. I didn't know you've been taking it. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, oh, man. Next time you, next time you come, I'll give you some. We have some here, some warm. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, um, that's that's okay. So this is, I, uh, there was a, on on a flight to Halifax once. I sat next to uh, what the heck do you call those people? Her natural oh, crap. Um, naturopaths. Yeah. Is that what they're called? Naturopaths. Yeah. Okay. I sat I sat next to a naturopath, great lady, in her forties, um, and you know we we got talking and had a great conversation with her, and I started 
basically just talking to her and asking her questions about you know some of these things that I've heard naturopaths tell me. So because I've been to a naturopath, mm-hmm. um, um, and so I was asking her, I was like, okay, so what do you guys, what do you do as a naturopath? Like, do you do you have skin in the game? You know, do you do what you tell other people to do? Yeah. And she was like, yeah. So I'll tell, I'll give you an example is what she said. Um, every time that she, her family gets start to get sick in any sort of cold or any, any sort of sniffling, she gives them like five, six tablets of um, vitamin C, mm-hmm. like high doses of vitamin C. Uh, and what she has found, you know, from through her eyes, she has kids, I think they're like 20 or something. And what she's found their whole time, their whole life is every time she's given them that the correlation has been their sickness has stopped and or has, has receded. Mm-hmm. So her, um, her suggestion, she wasn't, give, she couldn't give me advice, obviously, because I'm not her patient or anything. She was just saying, this is what I did. So I started doing it. So every time I would get some sort of sniffling or any sort, anything that indicated I might be getting sick, I would just take, I have like a vitamin C of a thousand mg per tablet. I take like four. Boop. <laughs> four five. Too too much of anything, like especially especially um, just pure vitamins is actually not good for you. So here's the thing: with vitamin C, with vitamin C, you you apparently you pee it all out. You know everything you don't use. Yeah, but, but what I found is every time I've taken it. Anytime I've had sniffling or close to like, yeah. you, everybody knows when they're about to get sick. That feeling of like yeah. your head kind of hurts, your, your joints are aching, you know, you start sniffling. Anytime that's happened, Amos, and I could be, this could just be pure correlation and maybe I'm eating something else. But I do that, boom, nothing. What am I to do? Yeah, but I, I've heard that just taking vitamins, like, you know, taking four times the recommended dose of a vitamin, it just makes your kidneys work hard and it's not good for your kidneys. I mean, you're probably right, but I seem to not get sick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is a, yeah, <clears throat> there is some, um, going back on the tradition, I, there, there, you know, it, it is a strong, a strong, case to be made for the importance of tradition within human society Mm -hmm. i think there's a very strong case to be made you know we're not we're human beings or modern humans us you me and everyone else living right now we're not isolated human beings that were popped onto this planet just now yeah you know there's a whole tradition a louvre tradition that has brought us where we are our language our food our culture um the way we think even the sort of thinking that you do. And so to d- discredit traditional medicine, like the Chinese one, for example, since mm-hmm. it's the most well-known one, it seems ludicrous, ludicrous, ludicrous now with, with the research coming out. But um, I'm sure, you know, after the enlightenment within, within Europe, having, you know, cured certain diseases and, you know, having successes in, finding out certain treatments for certain problems, it would look very off-putting from their perspective if someone was like, hey, 
bear bile. If you have a heart attack, you take bear bile and boom, your heart will resuscitate by itself. You're like what? Bear bile? Like what's bear bile going to do? But you yeah. know, the lack of knowledge, it's actually the lack of knowledge on the European, I'm talking specifically European enlightenment to not be able to see it because they're, the research is not at the level where they can actually test the bear bile. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's a bit of a, like a cultural pride kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I was, that, I'm actually quite reluctant to say that because that is often what you hear yeah. from. No, go ahead. Oh, often what you hear from progressives trying to make the claim that everything is white supremacist, you know, our culture is white supremacist, ingrained, racism is ingrained in it. And so I'm somewhat reluctant to say that because it's not necessarily racism. The Japanese, for example, uh, before the samurai culture drop fell in like, um, I think in like 1895 or something, I forget what, what year it was, the samurai culture dropped. Mm-hmm. Before that, they hated, they, they would basically beat up people who looked or dress Western. So, you know, the bowler hats and then wearing suits within the samurai culture before Japan, before Japan became modernized, they looked down upon these Westerners, Western-esque. And so it's not like there's anything unique about Western culture such that it makes people not appreciate other cultures. It just seems universal across any human culture. Mm. And if, if you're coming in with a very stark and contrasting culture, you do you do react. You're not gonna sit there like, oh, this is exactly the same as my culture. Yeah, yeah. sure. There's that tendency in. Yeah, I, I think that's just a basic human tendency is to um, alienate and demonize the other. But there are certain tendencies in European intellectual culture uh, that did sort of suggest that you know um, we have a superiority. And there's a lot of, you know, racist propaganda about like the, you know, the burden of the white man is to civilize everyone else. Mm. And so I think people who make those criticisms do have a point. Um, maybe it does get a bit overblown. And, you know, there tends to be a, ten- like there's a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but yeah, I, like when it comes to say, you know, the, um, you know, in, in analytic philosophy, there's often a, quite a dismissal of any sort of folk knowledge whatsoever. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a pos- huge positivist tendency in analytic circles, and it tends to obscure a lot of things. Um, in, in, you know, in contemporary Western culture, literature doesn't really play a big role in, in society in the way it does. And I think, like, say, like a, a huge purpose of literature in the past has been to uh, hand down paradigmatic ways of life, you know, either good ones, ill ones, uh, like literature has a public moral purpose. Uh, the reason that you'd get together and, you know, perform, uh, Oedipus Rex or read the Iliad together is, you know, is that there are these, um, moral paradigms and these ways of life that are presented in these things. And, and you know, it's the same reason for the public. Well, it's part of the same reason for the public reading of scripture. Um, yeah, and so the, what was my point? The public reading of scripture. Is meant to, like, it, it presents a certain way of life. 
And uh, some of the dismissal of that has led to a lot of the cultural issues and alienation of of modern society that people do react against. People react against? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, since, like since the 60s, we've lost a lot of, I mean, we were individualistic culture before that, but we've sort of become a hyper-individualistic culture. Mm. And uh, we've lost a lot of our um, traditional religious norms, traditional literary norms. We're not like educated in the same way. Mm. And um, yeah, the, like the wisdom that is preserved in these you know, paradigmatic archetypal stories, I guess you could say, uh, is something that we don't engage with anymore. And it's like we're starting over from point blank. Archetypal, archetypal stories that we don't engage in anymore. Yeah, so I never had to read the Iliad when I was mm, going through high mm. school. Um, and like, you know, yeah, there's this all, all sorts of other folklore that does have a certain amount of wisdom that's also been dismissed. So, you know, I, d I don't know very much about Chinese literature at all, uh, but I'm sure, you know, I've heard like... Um, Oh, what's the, the story, the tale? Is it Legend of the Three Kingdoms? You I don't know. know. Okay. I don't know this. Oh, there's, there's like a lot of um, like ancient poetry that's been preserved and passed down uh, that I'm sure embodies uh, just as much wisdom as the Iliad does. And it's just not in Western curriculum. Yeah. It's not in Western curriculum. I know. And... You know, maybe it ought to be if our goal is to achieve wisdom. Mm. Yeah, if our goal is to achieve wisdom, then sure. <clears throat> but at the same, but yeah. mm. Amos, I think I lost Amos. Amos. <clears throat> yep. Oh, okay. I, no. I thought I. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. If our uh, if our goal is to achieve wisdom, sure. But um, this is something I wonder, and I've told you, and I've I, I've brought this up with you multiple times. Um, you know, I wonder if the only time that that would ever happen is if humanity united towards a like the whole Earth united towards a particular goal that's outside of themselves. You know, I hey, let's colonize Mars together. Then there's a sort of unique because right now there's because even if you told someone, hey, this is it would be great for you to know, let's just say, Taoism or mm -hmm. uh, Confucianism to to anyone outside of China, let's just say, mm -hmm. uh, there would be a tendency to be like, well, wh why do I need to know it? You know, I already know everything I need to know. And then the same thing you could say to Chinese um, to the Chinese and say hey you, you should learn Thomism you should learn or you should learn Thomas Aquinas you should learn Avicenna you should go read some you know um, uh, Athanasius it'll be very helpful for you just with the philosophy that he talks about and they were like well why do I need to know that if I can get everything not everything but if I can get you know some basic living principles already through the through the literature that we I've read within my own culture. 
<clears throat> Amos, I think I lost Amos again. Yeah. Oh, you're back. I don't know what did you yeah. did, did I get I, did I get stuck on uh, your end? No, oh. no, you slow you slowed down. Uh, my internet connection is a bit patchy right now. Yeah. Um, with the tradition, there is there is been a rise in trad Catholics, and we you know we've talked about this a little bit. Yeah. And for people who don't know Amos, what is a trad Catholic? Um. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I guess there's a there's a tendency to to want to reject a lot of the modern developments in the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, it sees sort of the um, since Vatican II. Yeah, so Vatican II, instead of being seen as an attempt to to retrieve uh, a lot of the patristic sources, like you know, wisdom of the early Church, they see it as an attempt to uh, come the Church to modernity and reject a lot of its past. Um, and so there, there's a lot of people who would say, you know, reject Vatican, uh, what it's doing with the past. Um, and, you know, people did take it in that way, uh, especially in North America. Um, there's a real tendency for people to say, well, yeah, they're, they're sort of updating a lot of things that are old. And so we should just bring that through to its logical conclusion and liberalize the church. Let's make it just like the, you know, Episcopal Church or the United Church or any other sort of more uh, liberal denomination. Um, yeah. And so I think against the sort of liberalizing movement, uh, there's a reactionary movement that just wanted to, you know, they were conservatives, but in, in the face of, you know, what they felt was a challenge to their way of life, they uh, uh, sort of doubled down and became quite authoritarian in their mm. desire to preserve a tradition, which is a, a huge danger in talking about tradition. A huge um, danger. In, in like, you know, people want to preserve their, their traditions and sometimes they're willing to dehumanize in order to do it. Dehumanizing in terms of disregarding so, someone's position or disregarding the, the whole as the, the person as a whole. Um, yeah, no, I, I just mean like there, I know there's a tendency in like far right groups to say, um, you know, our, our traditions are being challenged by something like immigration, right? And to sort of double down and just become very, 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 like get into sort of a dangerous, violent worldview. Mm. Um, and like, you know, that, that is a real danger, but we don't want to go there. Um, and I think it's kind of absurd to go there as well. Um, but back to the, you know, to your question. So I guess trad Catholics, they, there's certain characteristics that are similar to, uh, American fundamentalism, mm. uh, because it, it is something that sort of grows up in the American context quite a bit. Uh, like the, the movement itself is quite North American. Um, and it is sort of a, uh, you know, reject modernity, anyone who sort of opposes our uh, conservative way of life, uh, you know, they're not, they're not one of us, not, you know, there's, there's not much engagement, I think. When you say conservative, uh, challenge our conservative way of life. Yeah. You mean 
<clears throat> is there so, so a big thing is uh, Catholics after Vatican II started saying mass in local vernacular languages, yeah. and people felt like, no, this just isn't the same. You know, church isn't the same, and there's a need for uh, like Latin mass. And you know, sure, the, you know that, that's the tradition that's you know that people have preserved. Um, and like, there's there's sort of a beauty to a lot of the traditional like music. Um, and things like that. And so, you know, it's something that's worth preserving. Mm. Um, but I think when, when challenged, people sort of uh, maybe took that a bit too far and they would say things like, you know, mass in English is not real mass. And What? Um, <laughs> yeah, this is a new sect and it's not, you know, it's not, it's not the same religion as us. No. Uh, the Pope is not Catholic. No, <laughs> I mean you mean the current Pope Francis? Yeah. yeah, well, anyone since since Vatican II. Anyone since Vatican II, including J John Paul the uh, Second? Like no, that's that's sort of like the the radical um, uh, Sedi Vacantist. Okay. Uh, what about the seat is empty? Like the seat of Peter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there is a strong relation between and, trad Catholics and like. Um, tribe Catholics and far far right it's not really the right word I'm looking for but people who tend to say we have to preserve the way of preserve the western culture and I have I have no problem with the western culture yeah but it's just a way where there's a dismissal that western culture is there's nothing really western about western culture yeah and so what, what I've noticed anyways is um well, I mean, I'm on I'm on Twitter, and I've noticed that you know, some of the like trad Catholic circles have, have begun to embrace um, like different, you know, they uh, Franco is sometimes I, idealized as like you know this this guy embodies uh, Catholic social teaching. Fra Francisco Franco was a fascist dictator of Spain, um, you know, from just before the Second World War. Uh, oh, how long was he in there? I think up until the seventies. Um, and like he, you know, he was, he was brutal, uh, quite violent. Um, I don't know why he's idolized, but you know, there, there's an idea that, um, yeah, like modernity, um, and especially the left wing manifestation of modernity poses a challenge to, you know, to our identity and we need to oppose that by any means necessary. And so there, there is sort of a violent tendency that said, like, I think, a lot of people who are often labeled trad are Not just really trad. No, they're just like everyday people who like you know uh, a lot of you know the old aesthetic, you know, mm. like Latin, and you know who who would be more conservative in their theology, yeah. um, but who maybe aren't you know you know who who are actually quite intellectually open. Um, so I, I don't want to misconstrue, you know, all these things go together and correlate perfectly because mm. uh, there's also a tendency on the Catholic left that I've noticed to be more open to say like the, you know, the old liturgy and, you know, a lot of old theological sources as well. And they, they would see themselves as traditional as well, but, you know, not trad. The Catholic 
the Catholic circle is one of the more interesting groups I find, because you have such stark contrast between who can be considered Catholics. You have the Jesuits. Yeah. And then you have the Dominicans. <laughs> you yeah. Know? I mean, that, that's sometimes a bit superficial, like a bit, a bit of a superficial division. Like, you know, you, you find some Dominicans who are, like the Jesuits are often seen as like, like liberal. Um, which they often are. Yeah, which they, they often they, are. But, you, you know, there's also um, some, some pretty conservative theologians who are among the Jesuits and some pretty liberals who are among the, um, Dominicans. the Dominicans. Yeah. But within Catholicism, there is a tendency to be more big tent, it seems. Yeah. Um, and I, I do wonder if there would be a, ever a split that comes within Catholicism again. Um, yeah, I, I wonder. North American and, and German Catholicism seem to be a, a bit unstable at the moment. Hmm. Uh, but another, but like, I, I don't really know. Like, you know, I'm not a Catholic, so. Uh, um, I What I understand, though, is it's a bit more stable in other places than it is in North America and some of the European countries. In, say, like, you know, Africa and South America are mm. still quite strong and uh, a bit more unified. Um, Patrick Deneen is a yep. book that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. And he, he sort of notes how, how religious groups have become politicized and how uh, politics North, in North America, anyways, politics have sort of consumed all other ways of life, or all other aspects of life. Sorry, uh, where uh, you f- you find that um, uh, you know Jews, Christians, and Muslims who vote for the same political party are more likely to be friends than say Christians mm. who don't. Mm. That would be very. You know, we should we should we should reach out to him and have him on. Yeah, he'd be an interesting guy to have on. It would be very interesting to talk to him. I, yeah, I, I, with yeah, I guess it it is more interesting um, with trad Catholics because they, on the one hand, you can see what they're reacting to, but it seems sometimes they go a bit too far and say, I, I think that's also common within trad uh, Catholic circles to dismiss to consider Protestants as like lower than not lower, lower, not, they don't really treat Protestants any different, but they're in their talk. They think Protestants are like one of the worst people in, in society. Yeah. And worse than atheists. So they like, I saw a list. One. <laughs> it was like, uh, they were listing who the best people are and who uh, going from best to worst. Yeah. And then at the bottom was Protestants. And then right above it was atheists. <laughs> You know. I, I think I've seen something similar. And I mean, this is the thing with the whole Western thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of Western culture. You know, it's done more, it's helped more people than any sort of culture that we've, we've had in human society. Mm-hmm. But I say that with, uh, with an asterisk because Western culture is not really Western, Western. You know, there's a tendency to think, there's a tendency both on the left and the right to think Western means North American or British, mm-hmm. and you know, or European specifically. But you're talking about some of the early guys who helped it. Yeah, um, they're they're not necessarily Western. Or no. we don't consider them as Western. 
Yeah. Um, West, yeah, Western culture is a strange thing. Um, yeah, there, there's a French historian named Remy Bragg who gives uh, an interesting argument. And, you know, he, he's sort of like, yeah, we, we should stop talking about Western culture because so much of Western culture has actually been adopted from the Middle East. And, you know, all the big, a lot of the big central figures that we see of as you know, the, the founders of, of Western culture. So, I mean, like, you know, Plato and Aristotle were very influenced by uh, Persian and Egypt, like, you know, wisdom coming from Persia, wisdom coming from Egypt. And so there, you know, there's a huge influence on Pythagoras and other early Greek philosophers from Middle Eastern culture. Um, you know, uh, it's like, so St. Augustine, he's, he's sort of seen as one of the founders of Western, you know, one of the big intellectual uh, heavyweights of Western culture. So much of, of Western culture derives from him. Uh, but, you know, he, he's North African. His dad was a Roman, but his mom was a local Berber. Um, mm, and so, there, yeah, like there, there is a, a, like a, a huge North African influence on Augustine. Uh, and like on a lot of the early church fathers, there, there is sort of like a, a, Athanasius. Greek, Greek North African, uh, um, I, I don't want to say syncretism, but they're like, uh, like a, a cult. I think syncretism is the right word. I don't think it is because that implies sort of a mixing of religions, but it's more of a, well, you know, there's a huge um, appropriation. No, the, there's multiple cultures that are having an influence on these people. Um, yeah, in church circles, uh, is a is a Syrian monk uh, who sort of wrote under the pseudonym uh, Dionysius the Areopagite, and just like hugely influential mm-hmm. on on all all Western Christian thought like throughout the whole medieval period into modernity. Uh, he's like so so influential on the history of Christian mysticism, and you know he's a he's a Syrian monk. Um, he's he's a Middle Eastern guy, mm-hmm. um, and so some you know. He's sort of like the, you know, one of the fountainheads of Christian mysticism. Let's say, one of the most important figures to to write in Christian history on, you know, spirituality, divine ascent. Um, so, the one thing though is, there's a tendency to think that the Middle East currently we think of the Middle East as a Muslim kind, Muslim. Muslim area and you know it's yeah. historically been Muslim but it's really not been historically Muslim no. you know, it's been I mean obviously in certain places there have been very strong uh, Christian influences but then in other places it's been very polytheistic uh, yeah, polytheistic is the right word I'm looking for yeah, yeah. I think well it depends on what area you're talking about in the Middle East, because it's quite vague. But if you're talking about, say, um, like the Levant, uh, it's actually up until like the you know 15th century that it was majority Christian. Um, Which is, if we're talking human history. It's pretty yeah. recent. Yeah, it's like you know five six hundred years. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, that's that's not something people think about that often, uh, but just in regard to, you know, Muslim versus Western, um, we often underplay, downplay the influence of, say, like the Arabic translation project. And um, so I guess in the, um, when would I say, 
uh, 8th century, 9th century, um, Muslims, uh, I, I guess like a lot of Christians, so yeah, a lot of Syriac Christians started translating uh, Greek sources into Arabic. And part of it was, it's like they, you know, they were commissioned by, say, like the Abbasid dynasty uh, to do so, so that like Muslim philosophers could could debate with Christians. It was sort of meant to be, um, we, you know, we want to inherit Christian learning um, so that we can articulate our own faith. And so there was like a huge um, Greek and Christian influence on Islam at that time. And, um, you know, even like in early Islam itself, like Nestorian Christians had quite an influence yeah. on Muhammad. I think, um, you know, he spent some of his time in his early life yes. as a as a sort of a traveling merchant. And he stayed with Nestorian Christians quite a bit. I'm pretty sure uh, his uh, brother-in-law was a Nestorian Christian. Uh, I, mm, the one who told him, because when Muhammad had his uh, visions in the cave, he came and told his wife. And his wife said, I don't know. Why don't yeah. you ask my brother-in-law or my brother? Right. Brother and then he went and asked them and said, these are my visions. And so his brother and Muhammad's brother-in-law said, oh, so Muhammad said, who do you think this is from God? And his brother-in-law said, yeah, I, I think this is from God. You should take okay. it seriously. Right. I'm pretty sure he was an historian. I mean, okay. I could be wrong, but I do, I do think yeah. he was an historian. He could have been, but like, you know, historian Christian, like historian Christianity, uh, which, um, you know, I, I guess most like Orthodox Christians consider it a heresy, but you know, it's still, uh, it's still part of Christian history. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, like the Nestorian Christians had a huge cultural influence on the Middle East at that time of where like, Islam first started out. But um, yeah, so there, like, there's an initial Christian influence on Islam. Uh, but then uh, later on in, in history, so like 12th, 13th century, there's a huge Muslim influence on the West. So when um, you know, Spain was being reconquered and there's sort of a, an intellectual, so yeah, Spain was, uh, was Muslim for quite a while. Most of Southern Spain was Muslim. There was like a real strong university culture there. And when the Northern Spanish reconquered the peninsula, uh, they had all these scholars and all these sources and they translated a lot of these Arabic sources that were written by you know, mostly Muslims, but also Jews and Christians into Latin. And those sort of became a, uh, a strong source of, um, of influence and like a source of intellectual revival in the West. Mm. Um, it's, it's how a lot of Greek sources. So Aristotle, uh, didn't like not very much Aristotle survived for most of medieval history in the West. And it wasn't until he was translated back from the Arabic and, uh, you know, he's translated from the Arabic first and then from the Greek. Um, but yeah, so a lot of our, you know, a lot of our access to say Greek cultural sources comes through the Arabs and a lot of them were very, uh, very wise commentators and uh, on Aristotle and other Greek sources. And a lot of them were good, you know, great philosophers in their own right. Yeah. And these guys came to have a tremendous influence on, uh, on the Christian West. Like, you know, they, they were just more advanced in science in philosophy in logic mathematics and um when these sources started making their way into the west the west uh integrated a lot of the wisdom they had discovered and tried to you know respond to some of the, the things that they saw as error 
Uh, but still, like that's as much a part of our, you know, Arabic learning is as much a part of our history mm-hmm. as European learning. Yeah, and and so going back to what we were initially talking about, and where you had said Western culture. Yeah, Western culture slash. Yeah, that uh, the idea of a unique Western culture um, that saw itself in contrast to the Middle East. Um, Maybe like yeah, sure. Contemporary contemporary Middle East has a serious problem in terms of its, um, in terms of academia, in terms of like producing highly in uh, highly um, revered intellectuals. And mm-hmm. there's a there's a gentleman. Uh, what's her, his partner is Michelle. I forget what her name is. So something Michelle, I think she was on the Joe Rogan podcast. She's an Asian Asian lady, mm-hmm. but her partner, her business partner, they have a business called I think it's called like Arabic translations or something. I'm, I'm, and the whole project is to translate some of the great works that we have into Arabic mm-hmm. because there is there is more. I forget what the number is now, but there are there's so little Arabic translation within. Arabic translation slash Arabic books that are written every year mm-hmm. that it's causing serious um, delay in their intellectual progress and scientific progress. And so the whole project that they've done, and this guy's from, I think this guy's uh, from Egypt. He's trying to bring it back by translating this, these uh, books. So yeah, know, compared to, you know, with ISIS, for example, remember when ISIS went to, uh, uh, was it, it's not Lebanon, where they, blew up the ancient site. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, it was in Iraq. Yeah. It was in Iraq. Okay, yeah. And they blew up the ancient site and went to the museum, broke all those things because it's, you know, it's yeah. it's a disgrace to um, to Allah. Like that, you know, compared to the compare those guys to even compare those guys to the uh, to their own ancestors, their ancestors would be totally pissed off at the at what they're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of like complicated cultural history, like, you know, there's, there's a slow decline of the Ottoman empire. Um, yeah. And sort of a rise of a, a sort of fundament, like, you know, Islamic fundamentalism that doesn't have deep roots in history. Uh, it seems to be, uh, there's a book and I can't think of the title and it, it sort of argues like its main thesis is that, um, you know, the sort of Wahhabism and, and Salafism that we, you know, that we see in organizations, well, like that, that's become quite popular in some places today is, is more of an invention of the 19th century than it, than it like it doesn't have much to do with history. I was, um, in relation to that, the, there are quite a few, there seems to be a movement of, um, Muslims in, well, contemporary Muslim countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, mm-hmm. Iran, where they are becoming atheists, but you know they can't come out as atheists because you know they would get, they would get in trouble, they get killed, or they go to prison. Yeah. But there's a guy. Remember the guy we went and saw, Armand Navabi? Yeah, I'm talking with a lisp again because <laughs> I accidentally hit my teeth. Uh, okay. Um, but you know, <clears throat> on Facebook, Armand has been posting for the past week now. Yeah, a week now of him going through religious books mm-hmm. and then tearing it live on Facebook live okay, and spitting on it and crumpling. So he did it with the Quran. He did it with the Bible. He did it with the Bhagavad Gita. He did it with um, the Torah. 
So those are the four books that he did it with. Yeah. And he's had people come on to do the same thing. So he's had an ex-Christian come on uh, to tear the Bible. Then he had an ex-Jewish person come on, tear the Torah. Then he obviously tore the Quran. Uh, the Bhagavad the Hindu holy book, they tore up and they, they crumpled it and spit on it. And, you know, I, some, I, I'm watching this, I'm, I'm laughing, I'm like, oh man, these guys, you know, he thinks it's so brave to do this. Yeah, when he, he's just like a, a fundamentalist of secular yeah. liberalism. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's you know, exactly it's, it. It's not, it's not that different from, because he, I think he grew up as a, in sort of a more like fundamentalist sect of Islam, right? Yeah, that's yeah. What he did. So, so I don't, I don't think the intellectual transformation is as much as he thinks it is. Yeah, and that's it. That's exactly it. You know, the the detransitioning. Like I would understand if you were Avicenna and then you became an atheist. Whoa! I was like, okay, brother. Yeah. You tell me exactly how you got there, because now I want to listen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, just since you brought up Avicenna, uh, yeah. and you, you're talking about sort of some of the decline in scholarship in the Middle East. And, you know, since, since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, yeah. there is a revival that's, that is going on in some places. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, people, I forget the guy's name, but people say what Alistair McIntyre did to rehabilitate uh, Thomas Aquinas yeah. in, like, uh, in philosophical circles in the West, dealing with like, metaphysics and ethics. He's done with Avicenna in the Middle East. And I can't He's remember. He's done it? Yeah, Alistair has done it? No, no, Alistair has oh. it. But there's this, oh, this, Avicenna. There's a Middle Eastern scholar who's brought back Avicenna, sort Good. of like a uh, like postmodern, you know, sociological method to approaching philosophy. Um, it, yeah, it's very apparently very similar to what Alistair McIntyre has done. I'm planning on reading the guy. Maybe this I, year at some point. Maybe we should do a reading group. I would like to do that. I would like to do that because, I mean, oh, crap. Sorry, just my mic's about to fall. <laughs> um, Avicenna, Avicenna, you know, is 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 fascinating to me. You know, when um when he's talking, because he, I think it's in the introduction to his metaphysics, he talks about himself and how smart he is. <laughs> Do you remember that? Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just talking about like um how yeah, I've learned all that there is to yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> By the age of fourteen, I yeah, read all the books available. I, I had mastered Aristotle by the yeah. age of 14. Uh, <laughs> I had no new thoughts. By the, t- <laughs> by, the t- by the time I was 18, all my thoughts were already made up. All my mind yeah. was made up. It's just the most boastful book ever. <laughs> I, but it's a great yeah. book. I mean, I used to stay up late at night and use like wine to keep myself reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you read that, so, and, and that, in that part, I think uh, he, he goes to, who was it? The Sheikh? He goes to one of the sheikh's place, remember? Mm-hmm. And the sheikh has access to this huge library. And he's like, oh, you know, I went and I just read all day. And he, yeah. You read it, you think, man, this guy is like the Conor McGregor of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he has things to back it up with. He's extremely smart. You read his work. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you're like, okay, this guy, this guy knows his stuff. And the... Yeah, there was a there's a there's a friend of mine who he's a Muslim, but he, he was telling me because you know I always uh, talk about Avicenna philosophy, and I was like, yeah, you know, Avicenna is, is someone that I think Muslims should read, and you know, we got talking, and he was like, 
you know what's funny? When I was in the Middle East, uh, when I was in, I forget where he's, he's from. Hmm. Whatever, I forget what what country he's, he's in specifically. Uh, but he was just saying, uh, of Saudi. Um, he was like, yeah, when I was in Saudi, you know, they would tell us, hey, you should read, read, read. You know, these guys, you, you should read and study. But something he said, which is very interesting to me, is he said, the funny thing is, they actually never taught us about these guys. They never, we never. I ne- didn't even know Avicenna was a real, like yeah. the, that we had Avicenna, Everose, or Ibn Sina, and um. I forget Everose's Muslim name, uh, Arabic Ibn, name. Oh, Ibn Rashid. Ibn Rashid. He's like, he said, I, I had never even heard of them until yeah. I came here and I started kind of looking up. And I thought, I mean, on the one hand, it's very sad. But on the other hand, you, you have the same problem within um, Christian circles generally. Yeah. Say. Yeah, no, I was just going to, yeah, there, there is the same problem where a lot of Christians don't know their, their history and some of the intellectual figures. Um, but there's also a strong, like, reactionary movement against these philosophers. They, like, they did entertain some positions that um, some saw as difficult to reconcile. For sure. With, with a lot of, you know, straightforward reading of the Quran and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, I guess there was a like a reactionary movement against them. Uh, you know, uh, Al Ghazali wrote the incoherence of the philosophers, and uh, you know that there was a divide between the philosophers and some of the speculative theologians yeah. at the time. Uh, just differences in in metaphysics, understanding of God. Um, you know, the eternity versus uh, the creation of the universe, and different things like that. Um, so I'm not surprised that uh, you know that people don't know this. And like you know, there's there's some circles in in Christianity uh, that would you know look at the Reformation and see like all of the philosophy that came before that is um, you know is is corrupt and we should ignore really? it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a bit. That's a mighty statement to make. I mean, yeah, it is, and it's not one that reformers would make for themselves. Uh-huh. You know, I, I'm just talking about broad intellectual tendencies, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there is, you know, even if it's not a direct rejection, there is a tendency to ignore it quite a bit, and just, you know, for, you know, I, I'm sure you've noticed this in philosophy departments, but there's a tendency to go, okay, we'll teach some of the pre-Socratics, Plato and Aristotle, and then we start our history philosophy course again with Descartes in the uh, in the 16th century. 800 years. Sorry, in the 17th. Yeah, so there's a there's a huge, well, it's it's more than 800 it's, years. It's like you know, that is um, more than. I mean, yeah, so, it's like a 1700 year break in your yep. history philosophy, and you know, stuff happened there. Um, stuff, stuff happened there. You know, they kind of they're like, okay, stuff happened there. We're not really going to talk about it because they're, they, you know, we we don't agree with any of it, or we don't know how to dis- we don't know how to, yeah, dismantle the argument. So we 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 caricature it and then dismiss it. Mm-hmm. And and that that is that is something that's become that's something that to. Um, that I've found to be true within even political conversations. 
right? Where, for example, some of this, some of these like, like anti anti racism rhetoric that's that happens, mm-hmm. position it such that first of all, it's impossible to discredit. Or if you deny it, then you're an anti-racist by definition. But they've done it such that um, there's a uh, they haven't discred they haven't rebut they haven't provided any sort of rebuttal to the argument that's being in. So, like, if you know, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, uh, oh, that all, all that all white people are racist. That's a very common thing. Right, that, okay. that all white people are racist, and the you know the obvious example, or the obvious rebuttal with any rebuttal, you just need one example to discri- to dismiss the whole thing. And there sure. are multiple. There are more than, more than one example of that. But then what ends up happening is with the more woke lefties, they're like they would say, "Oh, it's true that you've provided us a rebuttal, but we're not even going to respond to it. We're going to pretend that your rebuttal is racist," and so. We can continue holding to this. So the very same thing with um, with when uh, when the enlightenment or the yeah when the enlightenment came about to move ahead, they didn't really do any sort of rebuttal against the the, the current Aristotelianism. Or what they did end up rebut- rebutting was a very very fundamentalist watered down version of Aristotelian Aristotelianism. Yeah, like a straw. Yeah. It's mostly straw men that a lot of the, uh, well, I mean, that sort of Descartes is dealing with is, is not the strongest. Yeah. He's dealing with quite a, um, a non-rigorous Aristotelianism. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, but I just, there, there's a tendency, you know, not to uh, dismiss your point, but there's also a tendency, I think, in some people on the right to, uh, D- dismiss people on the left in the exact same way and i think there's a need for conversation yeah uh, i think there's a need for people to read tom soul and then yeah I sure mean, i mean like yeah there's a need to get into some of this history uh definitely but you know um yeah like so when some of the accusations of racism are made there is yeah. like, sometimes a a mere tendency for people on the right to shut down conversation and just say, make fun of people on the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, so I mean, I think like, like an intellectual response should be like mediated and really try to like, you know, deal, deal with people on their own terms. And I think that's also, and that's just a reaction, you know, yeah. after being accused of something that perhaps you're not, and most likely, uh, most likely not you get sick of it and say, okay, well, this is stupid. I'm not going to engage in it anymore. There's no, mm-hmm. my intellectual bandwidth is, 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 has reached its limits. Yeah. I'm trying to engage, you know, properly with someone. Yeah. I, so going back to the conversation about um, the West being West, okay. you know, there's a, it's like it, it does become that later on, though. Hey, what? Like the the West being, you know, like I, I'm thinking of some of the French philosophers who, you know, who would look down on other cultures. Yeah. And, you know, who would, and there's a tendency, especially in the Enlightenment, to do that. It's because they're French. 
<laughs> I think I have a... Uh, you know, if you look at some of the... I mean, uh, yeah, like Paris, like the University of Paris was for a long time like the intellectual center of Europe. And by, as an intellectual center of Europe, it was willing to engage with and, um, you know, ad adopt those aspects of, you know, Muslim philosophy, Jewish philosophy, uh, that it saw as true. And so that's you know, there, true. there was this sort of superiority complex mm. to it. And w w the superiority complex, where do you think it came from? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. There's a lot of like weird cultural tendencies that, um, you know, that, that begin in sort of the late medieval, early modern period. And I think it's sort of difficult to narrow it down to any one thing in particular. Um, but there is like more of a sense of us then conflict that emerges at the time. What's that knocking sound, Amos? I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm starting to th become more and more convinced that a lot of the, uh, that it's just, that it doesn't matter what religious, what religion, religion is in power or what religion has the most say. Okay. Um, within a society, that the society will always some sort of uh, society will degenerate into some form of serious disagreement. When I say serious, I mean violent disagreement. You know, you have wars that have. So, uh, what I'm thinking of specific, say the all the wars that happen after the Reformation. The Reformation happens, mm -hmm. and all these little small wars occur, right? Yeah. Um. And so from an out, so if you kind of, if you're just looking at it and reading it from an outside, you know, very divorced perspective, you would think, oh, this war is cause this, this is, this is Christians, you know, this, this Christians are violent to begin with, you know, they're just, it's just part of who they are. Mm -hmm. But I think the more honest, honest slash more serious view is, well, it, it seems that it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew. Well, Jews tend to be the most uh, persecuted, so let's skip skip the Jews. But Hindus, Buddhists, there is a tendency. It seems for just any sort of group, doesn't matter how good their group, how good how good the religion may have been founded. You know, Christian Jesus being, you know, he's saying, "Hey, love your enemies," blah blah blah. There is that human tendency to just fight and kill and sort of. Religion doesn't really play a huge role anymore. I mean, the, the yeah, the wars after the the Reformation is quite scary because you had, if you look at it from now our perspective, or even here the French Catholic, the French Catholic versus the English Protestant, the the fights that happened out in Quebec. Yeah, you look at it, you know, you know we have friends who are Catholic, Amos. Yeah, you know, and I, and I think in that perspective, like, would I go and kill Carlos? No. <laughs> You know, for example, he's a good friend of ours. Yeah, yeah, he's going to listen to this podcast. And go, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to hang out with him soon, so I'm going to tell him. Yes. That <laughs> no, you know, of course I wouldn't. And of course I know you wouldn't. Yeah. But at that point, you know, just even. It's absurd to even bring that up. But you have that such, like, after the Protestant, uh, after the Protestant Reformation, yeah. you have these wars. 
you know, between the Protestants and yeah. it, it just seemed more political. I guess what, sorry, my, my, my I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but it, my point would be that it, yeah, religion plays a factor, but it all, almost always comes down to like a political pa- power battle. As yeah. Opposed to religious. Yeah. I was just going to say like the, you know, for better or worse in, in medieval, well, in, in your religion was, and like and politics weren't separated at all and so you know what you see with those wars is a breakdown of an old cultural political paradigm and the emergence of a new one and those going to battle i think that would be more accurate yeah and it it doesn't necessarily have to do with the religion per se uh because even you know even in uh like medieval catholicism there was still a like requirement to you know, to, to some sort of tolerance of, of other religions. Uh, you, you can't compel people to convert. You need to treat them respectfully because they're, you know, they're in the image of God. Mm. Um, but yeah, once, yeah, one, once religion sort of got caught up in politics and it, well, it became a political pawn in some ways. Mm. Um, mm. those tendencies in the religion were sort of ignored and you just see a sort of brutality emerge. Yeah. The, the, the religion being, being a pawn, I think that's that's telling of a lot of the uh, religious um, angst within. You know, you take um, Burma with the uh, the Myanmar with the uh, the Buddhist monks, yeah, who are persecuting who are persecuting. Uh, what are they? Rohingya, the Mus- yeah, Rohingya the Muslims. Muslims. Yeah, and you look at it, and it's it seems more like a political Buddhism seems more of a pawn than anything. It's, it's more of a, we're putting this on where we're Buddhist monks. We're going to do it as opposed to what are you smiling? I'm just thinking about you saying, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, man. Yeah. I'm going to see him this weekend. I'm going to tell him what you said. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we could form a secret society if that ever happens. What? If, if 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 the Catholics and Protestants go to war, we'll form a secret society to stop the war. Yeah, um, the ecumenical initiative or something. I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. It is. It it is something though to think, because this is why uh, this is why I find culture appropriation such a stupid idea. The idea of culture appropriation being bad, because okay. you have. Every single culture has been the result of appropriating from another culture. Nobody, no culture forms in isolation from another. And if it ends up doing, if it ends up forming in isolation, you have underdeveloped, extremely underdeveloped societies like the Amazonian tribes, my own tribe, you know, we only became modernized when the missionary came in 18, 1899. I think that's the William Pettigrew game. Prior to that, we were living in, you know, we were living in the way that our ancestors were living a thousand years ago. Not much different, you know. Technology hadn't really progressed. You're still using spears, bows, you know, um, living in houses, sure, but the houses are. It hasn't changed. It hadn't changed. So we appropriated the British, because the gentleman was British, the missionary, you know, we took, took, took on his ideas. Great. My grandfather, my great grandfather went to, um, 
went to what do you call it man kindergarten kg1 or class one like okay. class one KG, when he was 40 or 35 or something okay you know? and he graduated grade 10 by the time he was like yeah 50 i think that's right 50 like he he passed his grade 10 when he was 50 years old and it's very strange saying that because most kids pass it when they're 18 here or 16 i should say yeah but the the, the sort of with culture, the appropriating is, is very important. I think it's, I think the problem more so is when someone does it without pretending that it's, I'm trying to think of the example of, um, so in India, a few months ago, Modi, the president, the prime minister, not president, he had a shawl on, right? Yeah. He had this traditional Naga shawl on, Tankul Naga shawl on. Okay. And he put it on and, you know, if you're a Tankul Naga, you would know it's a Tankul Naga. Or if you're a Naga in general, you would know it's a Naga shawl. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, he, he puts it on and <laughs> some like random place in India, like somewhere totally unrelated to Naga. They're like, God, this is ours. And then they started mass producing it. Okay. And so a lot of Nagas got pissed off. They're like, what are you doing? That's right. Like, you know, you didn't, you didn't come up with that. Like, you know, it's, it's a part of our culture anyways. Um, the whole conversation was, you know, they're appropriating, blah, 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 which, yeah, on the one hand, sure. my problem was more so, it, it's a sort of dishonest on this, uh, this group of people in India where they said, oh, yeah, we came up with this, it's our idea, when clearly it's not. That oh, feels, I, think you're, I think you're mistaken, Amos. Because okay. that feels like it's like a 2015 kind of discussion. <laughs> I, I but, know, you would think that. Yeah, I, I know that it's like there's still aspects of it, but I think the like the issue is more. You can't say dope. Of, you know that, right? I I don't know that, but apparently you can't say dope because it's part it's appropriating Black American culture. Like what? I don't know. No, I'm saying uh, it's stupid. It's yeah. dope is the dope is nothing to do. I mean, sure, the way it was used, maybe, but dope. The etymology of dope has nothing to do with African-American culture. Yeah. yeah, no, that doesn't seem very, yeah, that seems a bit dumb to me. But uh, like the, the issue seemed to be more of like a, like a disrespectful use and a sort of like mm-hmm. semi-mocking use, right? Yeah. Like when it became like a big issue in contemporary culture, it was like, um, you know, dressing up as other cultures for, to make fun of it and yeah yeah and to make fun of so like yeah yeah and i can see like just some of the discussion we had earlier about tradition i can see you know i I think maybe some of the harsh reaction to it is a bit unwarranted but it's you know i don't think it's a good thing to do yeah i think i think you're right about that amos um but i'm just looking at the time i think we should we should wrap up okay and we will, I mean, this is, this episode is coming out very soon, so. <laughs> okay. This is a very abrupt ending. <laughs> well, I was just looking at that. I was like, oh, crap. It's it's almost, uh, it's like almost two hours. Yeah. Almost time for you to get to work. Yeah. All right, Ames. Good talk. Yeah. I'll, I'll see you very soon. <laughs> okay.